Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey guys, it's Brent Birch, co-host of the Standard Sportsman Podcast. I'm joined again by Kaysen Short, and we've, uh, you know, couple weeks into launching this thing and pretty excited about where things are going but we've we've got a little time sensitive subject matter that we're going to interject between the the george dunklin part one uh that was released last week and george dunklin part two that uh, that interview was so awesome we we broke it into two parts and and uh that one will be going next week but 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 for the for this week and in between the two episodes we're going to talk about a, a pretty cool subject with some numbers that just came out uh, that's got the the duck hunting community uh, pretty pretty worked up, depending on who you talk to and and all that. So we're going to hash through some of that. Not real stat heavy. Uh, we will talk a few numbers, but we'll also kind of dive into some some thoughts and some some un- kind of analysis without getting into the into the weeds too much on uh, the bee pop, the breeding population survey, and and the May pond count and how that all figures into what kind of duck season we may have. So. Kaysen, welcome to another episode. Yeah, man, excited to be here. I uh, appreciate everyone who's tuning in and listening to these episodes. Uh, never really thought that people would care that much about what I have to say or what I think, but uh, the response has been great, so we appreciate everybody. Yeah, so uh, before we dive into that, let's take a, a brief second to cover uh, some some groundwork with our sponsors. We appreciate everything they do for us to help this podcast possible. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. From the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, light boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, farm and ranching, or home and gardening, light boots are guaranteed game-changers, now available in youth sizes. So, Brent, let's start off. Let's let's talk about the BPOP. Let's define what that is so our listeners will understand when they hear that term, what it is we're talking about, and what our friends at Delta DU, what they're discussing the BPOP is simply the breeding population of adults. So when you hear about the BPOP numbers, we are not talking about recruitment for this year. We are talking about the number of number of adults that survived last year that are estimated to be on the breeding ground. When they do this survey, this aerial survey, they also account 
they do a count for maypons. And then based on that habitat, they're able to give kind of an estimation of recruitment of reproduction. So that's what, when we talk about maypons, we're talking about the amount of water on the landscape. They literally count ponds while they're doing this aerial survey and they count ducks as well. So you've got a breeding population and then an, an estimation of uh, habitat quality on the nesting ground. I think it's important to note, uh, you know, a lot of people see that that BPOP number and uh, don't really understand what it is. Now, now, we don't, we as hunters aren't, uh, aren't hunting the BPOP. Uh, that, that number uh, can, can go all over the place and it's important to relate it to other years because you, you have to, you have to tie in, you know, kind of the landscape and, and what was going on. But uh, we're actually hunting the fall flight, which is that number, that BPOP number, plus this recruitment number, which is the newborn uh, ducks from this particular season. Those two numbers combined, that's what we should see, uh, you know, coming over our decoy spreads uh, this winter. That's correct. And for those of us, you know, in the southern states, lower in, in the flyways, it's important to note that we really aren't hunting breeding breeding pairs or adults as much as we are hunting juveniles. So that maypond count is probably the most significant number that we're going to look at in the Southern States. Um, it's a year of young, it's juvenile birds. Absolutely. We kill some adults. The age ratios show us that, but by and large, strong maypond counts mean big number seasons in the Southern States. Yeah. And that's what, that's what, hopefully what we're going to see. Cause our, or you know you could you can look back over time and we'll get in a little bit of the history of this but um you know these numbers they they zigzag you put them on a chart they zigzag all over the place um you know we we've had productive years with some decent maypond counts and but a high breeding pop we've had a low breeding pop but a lot of a lot of maypons uh, and they're called May ponds because that's actually when they fly the survey is in May. Um, <laughs> that's so right. it, it's not some code word or some acronym. That is uh, the actual time of year that they fly. So, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, um, they actually fly these transects, uh, which are, are which are the paths that the plane actually flies over. They fly the same ones every year. They don't they don't vary from that. Is that that's is that correct? Right? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. So, you know, some of this, you know, some people kind of scratch their head on the numbers and what do they really mean to a hunter? And we'll, we'll talk about all that, but it makes you wonder knowing uh, we've had some, some dry years, it's still kind of dry on, you know, in Saskatchewan, Alberta is really dry. Um, and I had a conversation with a, with a notable person at, at Delta Waterfowl that was really concerned whether Alberta would ever get uh good good water, good may pond count kind of situation again, because the past 20 years, it's been pretty tough, but. Yeah. The, the drought index just came out again last week and it's not, it's not pretty. Um, I think we'll get into the numbers here in a second, what the BPOP, you know, is, but I think a lot of people kind of put some faith in, Oh, well, we got some snowfall or we got some rain, but it's very, very small places that have, you know, decent moisture. I think by and large, we're we're still in a drought, and I think we're going to see pretty low recruitment this year. Um, you know, the maypon count is down, so it's hard to it's hard to rationalize that that reproduction would be up when our on our bee pop is down and our maypon counts are down. So, in saying that, let's let's jump in. Let's yeah. they came back. Let's talk about the the king. Let's talk about mallard ducks. Um, 
what was it? 6.1 million. Is that right? So that's right. That's right. eight down 18% from last year. And here's the kicker, 23% below the long-term average. That's a, a concerning number. We've obviously, we've been lower, we've been a lot higher too, but you know, it's moisture and habitat is the key here and we're lacking that and we're, we're seeing the effects of that. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing too is, uh, you know, uh, talking about these surveys and some numbers to kind of be able to kind of really judge where we are, you know, we didn't, we didn't fly surveys for the two COVID years, 2020 and 21. Right. There is no data. There is no BPOP data. There's no May pond count data. So uh, to me, it's pretty apparent those years weren't very good either. Uh, even though we don't have the numbers, they weren't very good. And you can kind of assume that because we know the prairie, the prairie pothole region was pretty dry. So what we're seeing is a string of, of pretty poor uh, years as far as the ability to, to, have good habitat for breeding pairs and our numbers are reflecting that. And, 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 you know, it's, it's kind of a year over year over year situation where it's hard to expect our numbers to, to rebound really well, despite the Dakotas having some good productive habitat. Um, you know, but Saskatchewan out of the picture, you know, we don't, I, I don't think Arkansas gets a lot of ducks from Alberta, as I recall from banding data. Uh, it's mostly Saskatchewan and Manitoba and the Dakotas, but, uh, you know, it's hard to get super excited that we're going to see a bunch of ducks, but at the same time, the ducks we do get, we still, we still got a, a bazillion other variables, uh, that we got to go through where the season's going to be any good. I mean, is it going to be cold where the ducks got to move? Are we going to have water on the landscape to hold them? I mean, this is, That's right. so this isn't the, before we get into all this stuff, this isn't the end all be all as to how the season's going to go. And if it's, if it's going to make you maybe not go, then you're, you're probably looking at the wrong metric. Well, yeah, and you, and you may, may be more about killing than you are the experience. And that's the thing you know. You and I talk about a lot about duck hunting. We, we all want to kill ducks. That's why we do it. But some of my best hunts maybe weren't you know, the, the fullest straps. So keep all that in perspective, too. Um, you know, we, we're still lucky to get to go. We're still... A healthy population of ducks where there's no reason to ring the alarm bell just yet but there there are some numbers that are disappointing i guess i'll say i would love to see more yeah yeah well the, yeah the 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 trends you know this these last five years they're not they're not favorable but everyone has to keep in mind that's been doing this a while knows there are very cyclical swings to uh ducks and and their uh population it just it's been that way for eons. Uh, I mean, you, you can attest to that, that your, you know, your grandfather had to go abandon uh, prime, uh, you know, green timber duck hunting yeah. ground to, to turn it to ag because the duck hunting got so bad. And that was the, was that in the sixties? Yeah. It wasn't two and 20 when that 62, 63. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere in there. But so we, you know, we've had some wild swings in this and we're right now we're at a swing. It's, it's not as bad as the, is maybe some some time periods in our lives that was you know kind of that late eighties early nineties era. Yeah, even though sure. the numbers are numbers are pretty similar, but there were some there were some days when it was it was really poor. Yeah, um, and we may see them again. Who knows? But but uh, the trends are trends are concerning. But it's not like uh, this is the end of end of the sport. No, for sure not. And hopefully we'll be able to share these links. Uh, to the fish and wildlife studies that you and I are kind of referencing here. 
but if you if you guys are listening, if you follow these links, go look at these studies. It's really eye-opening, really informative. When you go back and look at like 92, 93, you know, as we're coming out of that three and 30 period, you look at the maypons and the population, there's there's really some years that stand out to me. You would think, you know, there would be a big correlation to both numbers, but there's some years there where it kind of swings in opposite directions. I remember maybe it's like 05, I'm not looking at it right now, but you know, the pond count was below 3 million, which isn't even on the the chart where you can plot, you know, liberal versus moderate versus restrictive seasons. There's not even a, a spot for below 3 million, but we were there with pond count. Now, population was over 7 million for Mallard. So the population kind of saved us there from a restrictive season. But there's some interesting years that stand out. They don't really correlate like you think they would. No, no. I mean, yeah, because there's been some years where, the, you know, the, the bee pop was up, the pond count was up, but our, our season wasn't that great. Now, that's why you get into the variables of well, maybe it was warm all that season. Uh, maybe everything was frozen. I mean, who knows what happened, yeah. but, um, you know, yeah. So, 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 yeah, some of these numbers are, they're interesting. Uh, and you can take some of our, our best seasons uh, since, you know, 99, 2000, which was, the the we we reference them all the time the anomalies of of the the perfect storm kind of deal or what was perceived to be the perfect storm uh now 99 was a perfect storm b pop yeah. was way up pond count was way up robo duck got introduced and we killed over a million mallards but that was coming off of a you know 98 was a good year and so it was you know this is the cycle of of being able to put together a few back-to-back good good breeding years and all of a sudden your population is is where you want it to be where everybody's seeing the amount of ducks they want to see but in 99 i mean in 99 the year following 2000 b pop took a 12 percent decline yeah may ponds took a 41 percent decline huge drop and we huge drop and we still killed over a million mallards in 2000 yeah. so that you know that kind of just shows that you know that's a, that was a squirrely that was a squirrely set of years there, but that was coming off of a series of really good productive years. And so it, it, it allowed us to have really good productive seasons. So pond count in, in 2000 was just over 7 million. And we were in this lace, uh, excuse me, this last data that came out, we were at 5 million to give everyone kind of an estimate of our a ballpark of where we're at compared to what we all consider to be a, you know, high water mark. So down 2 million in pond counts, um, uh, that 5 million number is 9% lower than last year and 5% below the long-term average. So we're not far off the long-term average right there, but that's interesting, you know, just how quickly those numbers dropped in 2000. I mean, it, it bottomed out quick yeah. and it feels like a lot of this stuff is kind of a lag effect. You know, you, you'll see the May ponds, you'll see recruitment, you'll see the B pop drop. So it takes a little while to feel the effects of some of these numbers sometimes both in the negative and in the positive you can kind of look at that graph and see when things are starting to trend up, it may take a little bit for the population to show that it's up as well. Yeah. And I know I've heard, I've heard friends of ours talk about in the, you know, in the scientific community that a drought is actually really good for the prairies. It, it allows some of this habitat to restore itself. Uh, when water comes back on, like when you get a, a newly flooded prairie after a drought that you have super good recruitment. So mm -hmm. There's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel if we can get that water back on the landscape. 
Yeah, yeah. And it makes you wonder too a little bit. I mean, there's there's just so many variables. It's hard to just take these numbers and go, man, this season's gonna be good or this season's gonna be bad, or we're gonna bounce back, or we're or it's gonna we're gonna look at a few more years in a row. Cause you know, when things are dry, you know, on the on the prairie pothole region, you get into the whole uh swamp buster deal and everything else that that when some of these potholes dried up, did they get farmed? Um, or, or as close to possible, you know, is it leaving the little bit of wetland sure. um, that was left and, and all that. So, uh, you know, time will tell on some of that stuff, but, uh, we're due, we're due for some, some wet springs, um, that kind of perpetuate, you know, there was a lot of talk early and a lot of excitement early this year because it did snow and they got some late winter snow and that runoff and that melt was going to be awesome for ducks and that water was gone quick uh especially in saskatchewan alberta so um we're really banking we're really banking on north dakota being being super productive to to put that fall flight together like we hope we we we're going to get yeah and i you know i don't like to be doom and gloom but i don't put a lot of faith in in the dakotas um they definitely produce some ducks but it's not i don't know that i've ever seen the dakotas really save us when we when we needed it uh, they can certainly help and they can offset some things but that's not where the majority of the ducks are, are produced um in our at least for us um it's interesting you mentioned swamp buster talking tile drainage and farming i uh, had a conversation with a biologist the other day who we were talking specifically pintails and he was very blunt about it that he did not think that we would ever again see the population of pintails that we did, you know, not that many years ago, say 30, 40 years ago, that it just, with modern farming and how they nest and where they nest, it was not in the cards. Um, Now, that's not to say that we can't change that course through some regulation and through some, you know, habitat incentive programs, but on the track we're on, it's not, not feasible. It's just not there. Yeah. And that was, that's sad to hear, but. But let's, I mean, we can talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, you go back and look at, you look at those charts and you look at years that were really strong and it's easy to see. So 1985 was the first year of CRP program. So we immediately kind of come out of that three and 30 there pretty quick. Uh, we've got grass on the prairies. we got some moisture on the prairies. Duck population picks up. Maypons pick up. We hatch more birds. Things are good, Right. Then you start to see some of that land come out of CRP. You see in around 2000, another enrollment, because that's a 15-year contract. CRP gets put back in. Um, Maybe they enroll some more. You see those numbers kind of pick back up. So a lot of our recruitment really hinges on these programs. Um, They're expensive and they cost the taxpayers money, but they also, there's a lot of offsets, as you and I learned and, and talked about when we were in D.C. You look at WRE, for example, it offsets a lot of disaster relief payments for farmers and crop insurance. So one way of looking at it is obviously, you know, this is taxpayer dollars being spent on ducks, but in some ways it it offsets a lot of other costs that taxpayers are too. So not getting too far down the congressional budget office and how they rank these things, they are important programs. And I think they are a wise way to spend our tax dollars. There's certainly worse ways. (laughs) Yeah. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about that. But yeah, so let's, I can't remember if, are they doing any of it by ground or is it completely by air? You know, I think I was reading last night and I think I got the link pulled up here. I do think some is done by ground, but not much. 
So I'm looking here at Delta's website, and Chris Nicholas says the majority of surveys are done from fixed-wing aircraft with a pilot and an observer, both looking and recording sightings of waterfowl. Now, I did read last night, this was interesting, uh, that they basically call out the species and number and sex of what they're seeing uh, from an elevation of ideally 100 feet. And they've got a, a when it keys that mic in the aircraft, it begins to record. So they're just constantly recording what they're seeing. They're not having to write it down themselves and keep track as they're buzzing along there. It's an, it's an interesting methodology. And, but I mean, how else could you possibly do it? I mean, it's, you got a, you know, a duck that buries itself up in grass and, and, and in that, in that landscape. And I've seen it, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go to Saskatchewan and, and see what the prairie pothole region looks like. So, I mean, it's, it is tough business. So it's got to be some kind of a extrapolated number. But I was asking earlier whether they flew the same transects, you know, every year, regardless of conditions, they're flying these same deals. So they get consistent numbers. But it also makes you wonder a little bit if what if these ducks had relocated because of how dry it was these last handful mm-hmm. of years and the ducks that were traditionally on these transects that they were flying aren't using that area anymore so i mean and and i guess that's why they've got error margin for error in their statistics but and i'm not trying to paint a picture that uh you know the the u.s fish and wildlife is way off ducks are gonna be just fine and and you know everything's you know rainbows and ponies but um i I do wonder that because we're dealing with a, a kind of a stretch here of some pretty dry conditions on the ppr and did those ducks relocate? And so know that they're no longer underneath that plane. Something to think about. For sure. Uh, it, yeah, it absolutely is. And I think it's worth noting, too, if you if you look at midwinter surveys, right, and you add up all the midwinter surveys in your flyway, they usually don't add up to this BPOP, right? So you may not have a lot of faith in some of these surveys. Now, I will say this in defense of the BPOP numbers. If you go look at Lincoln-Peterson estimates, which is another way of you know estimating this breeding population. The Lincoln-Peterson estimates and the BPOP are always really close to one another. Now, the way we the way they use Lincoln-Peterson estimates is you take you know two known variables like your total harvest and your harvest rate, and you're able to multiply those and find your your breeding population. So the Lincoln-Peterson estimates have always kind of been there to back up the BPOP. Now, the midwinter surveys that's a whole other animal. Um, not to disparage any state and any survey. I know a lot of time, effort, and money goes into all of those, but I do know, talked to a head biologist in a, in a state one time who told me that just because he says he sees a million ducks on his survey doesn't mean there was a million ducks there. What he looks at is, well, last year I said there was 2 million. This year I said there was 1 million. So there's half as many ducks this year as last year. And that's what's important to me. I'm like, well, then why even put the numbers out there if they're not and I get they can't be accurate. It's an estimation, right? Like we're not really yeah. counting every individual duck. But that conversation with that guy kind of made me think, well, then maybe we should change, you know, what we call these things and how we inform the public of these things. Because people put a lot of faith in those midwinter surveys. And, you know, I know you had a conversation with someone who kind of thinks that that system is is dated. And I've had other, you know, other guys tell me that maybe we shouldn't be doing it. Maybe we shouldn't be investing in that anymore. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it, it's science, uh, no question about it and, and all that, but it, it deals highly in, in estimation, extrapolation, you know, and all this with, with 
formulas that are far more complex than than I could comprehend. <laughs> uh, and we got to we got to have something. We got we have to have something. We you know whether whatever that is. Uh, and so it does give us a marker, but it's not gonna. It shouldn't really di- dictate you know somebody's um, decision on whether they want to be a duck hunter or not. Uh, they'll then like you said earlier, if it's if it's just on those numbers and it's just mainly done around the harvest then they're they're going to end up sorely disappointed more days than not but but it makes you wonder also another thing that makes you wonder too or it makes me wonder is is if harvest number figures into these Lincoln piece Lincoln Peterson estimates formula and we rely on it with hip to to, to determine a harvest rate and and how that factors into <laughs> what kind of seasons we're setting I mean how how is that thing accurate? With yeah, I mean, because nobody would ever, you know, intentionally underestimate the amount of uh, coots or gallinules they killed last year. <laughs> well, true, true, <laughs> but I mean, to, I mean, you know, it's it's you know, it's what was it, eleven or over? And then right, yeah, I mean, eleven or over. That's so that could be a that's weekend. A, yep, yep. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now, now they've come out with a Loadout 30 Go Box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one. And then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when it hadn't rained in a while. It's a amazing product yeah so I, I use them a bunch uh same deal i've got a 30 that stays in the boat uh carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it and it's nice to know that clients dogs you know nothing's going to get it wet going to tear it up but the the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well i switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently and it's great to to use that 15 as an ammo box so i've got all the kids ammo gauge reducers hand warmers, whatever they're going to need in one box. And all I've got to do is grab it and I'm ready to take them out in the woods. Yeah. The Yeti Go Box is is definitely the way to go and keep it organized, accessible and protected. And it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must have for waterfowl season. Tom Beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen. Since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, canvas and leather bags and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at tombetby.com in their Birmingham, Alabama and Wilson, Arkansas stores and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity. So that that brings me to, to this kind of some of these last topics we wanted to discuss. I, I don't know. I don't put a lot of faith in harvest numbers. I just don't know how we accurately estimate that because I know you and I both know we're dealing with hunters and, you know, what, what is the saying? Loose lips sink ships. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to tell you how many ducks they killed or are they going to overestimate it because they want to brag about it on social media. So, you know, I don't put a lot of faith in that, but again, I, I talked to, uh, talked to a biologist this week, uh, been in the flyway meetings and, you know, he's beginning to kind of tell me that there's a little kind of dissenting opinion about regulations in that, you know, maybe overall hunting regulations don't matter as much as we think. Now, this is not this is not my opinion. I'm just relaying what I've heard. 
but and, and it's not to say that oh, well we can kill you know 50 ducks a day over 120 days and it won't matter i don't think that was the point he was making he really was referencing more that it's about habitat what what really drives duck numbers is habitat the abundance of habitat and the quality of habitat what we're doing you know harvest wise you know maybe more additive than they thought but but in the end it's really the population driver is habitat. And he brought up the, the cost of the BPOP survey um, and threw out a, a pretty large number. Uh, I don't even know if I feel comfortable saying it. It was such a large number. But his thought was, if that number didn't go into a BPOP survey, if we really don't need that number, if we're getting to it you know, by Lincoln Peterson, then why not take that money and enroll CRP acres? Um, and based on the number he told me and a rental rate of $200, we're talking a couple hundred thousand acres of CRP that we could fund just yeah, annually. Wow. So that's, again, uh, you know, he, he didn't say that he had figured the numbers. That was an estimation on his part. And I'm just relaying what I heard. So take all that for what it's worth, but that's a big CRP number there and a good rental rate. Like that's incentivizing farmers to no longer farm to that edge. Um, and I think it's going to take stuff like that to really, see some of the historic numbers that we once saw no question um and that that incentive piece it's not only to me it's not only important up there you know in the the prairie pothole region it's going to be important down here because For sure. you got to think about we've got to send you know part of our responsibility here in arkansas or in missouri or kansas or oklahoma or tennessee or tech wherever the ducks are in Part of our responsibility is to send these ones that that happen to survive a duck season is to send them back and send them back healthy and capable of of producing more ducks. I mean, so, you know, you got you got to think about the way that they get here and, and how important that is for us to be able to shoot them. But we got to also we got to send them back in good shape. The ones that do make it uh, to kind of keep this train rolling down the track. So uh, those on, incentive- we need to say that again for, for people that are listening. Yeah. You, if you lease land and your your farmer is draining water on the last day of duck season, please go talk to them. It is our role as stewards to send these birds back as healthy as possible. And a, most of the time that means having water late, giving them, you know, an extra two weeks to fatten up, get through those last couple of freezes and then make their way to the fall line. So, uh, sorry, I had to interrupt you there to say that. I mean, it's a, and it, that is, that's a, that's a huge point. Uh, for people to to grasp, and and most people, man, when January thirty first rolls around, season ends. That's it. They're, I mean, they're 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 yep, done with they're it, done. and and that and that's fine. And you know, not everybody is the same level of Razorback or Mississippi State football fan. I mean, you know, you got all levels in between. So that that's natural. But those that do have a say so, and those do want to see. Uh, or, or take an investment in in this this stewardship role that we have and this conservation role that we have. That's a huge thing to, to allow those ducks a little window after the season is over to with that with with us not out there jacking with them, <laughs> shooting at them, <laughs> running them up with a boat or a buggy. Uh, you know, ducks can be ducks and build back up their uh, resources to make a safe flight back to make more ducks. Um, you know, you it's hard to sit there and complain during the season about the amount of ducks you're seeing if you're not taking some kind of proactive action to help them make more ducks. Um, it, it just that that's a you're you're pulling you're pulling on 
of the wrong end of the rope, um, so yeah. to speak. So, um, I think you hear that a lot. Guys get really opinionated about what they see and what they kill, but then their opinions are aimed at some of these conservation organizations or state organizations as if it's their fault. You know, like that's not. You need to put your energy and effort to the positive. I guess is what I want to get at there. Yeah, well, we're, I mean, we're all responsible. Every one yeah. of us. Um, you know, it's it's just it's just the way this this worked. The, the ducks and geese cannot survive on just what the federal government and the and the state agencies do. It, it it's impossible. Uh, we talk about this number in an earlier podcast. Ninety percent of the habitat in Arkansas is privately owned. So yeah. it's a it's amongst us to do uh, you know all we can, but but that all gets back to that incentive co- comment that you made. That you know I know the state of Arkansas is working on incentives. Uh, there's some federal dollars available this year. Um, I'm kind of anxious to hear what how that's going to be doled out and who's going to get it. But um, they went uh, kind of county by county, and we're going to disperse some funds for people to do early flooding, no fall tillage, uh, holding water after the season. Just, just try to see if we can get some of this this farming community to um, do a, just a little bit more for for the waterfowl, um, kind of like it was in the good old days before everybody was was so mm-hmm. concerned with with hard. And, I mean, and you, I mean, you're running a farming operation. We have a farm, but it's one, it's small. Two, it's it's done for the ducks. It's it's small enough to to do that. It's not a we're not going to feed a lot of families out of that that farm by any means, but, um, you know, I get it. Farmers got to make money. Um, that's, that's what they do. And they got to find the efficient, most effective ways to do that. Um, I just hope it's not at the detriment of waterfowl. Yeah. In in no way can you disparage uh, a farmer from, from making money and it's a business. And we, we, we do that every day and make those decisions every day. You know, we try to strike a balance between what's profitable and what's good for the ducks. Um, and that's where these incentives come in. You know, they're they're going to make that decision easier for a lot of people. And you know, you touched on something a minute ago about the end of season and and holding water and trying to fatten up these birds. So we know we already know that a, a healthy bird with better fat reserves is going to get the primo nesting habitat. They're going to get back to the nesting ground first. They're going to get the best habitat, and they're going to have the best recruitment. Um, same in the real estate game, right? Like location, location, location. We also saw a couple of years ago, and these all this transmitter data, these GPS transmitters are, are cluing us into this stuff. You know, things we already thought we knew, we can now back it up. But we saw this uh, maybe three years ago when we had that really big freeze in February. We watched these poor body condition birds almost make a decision when that freeze hit. Was it worth the caloric expenditure to migrate back south and try to find food on a wasteland or was it more beneficial to save those calories hunker down and ride out the storm and obviously not every bird made the same decision but there were numbers numbers of encounters of tens 20s you know 50 100 birds that died because of that freeze and i'm not saying that if everyone left water that year that that wouldn't have happened that's not my point my point is just to show the example that just because season goes out doesn't mean that their journey or their trials and tribulations are over. They still need us. We still have that role and we still need to try to provide for them as best as we can. For sure. They, uh, I've been told by a couple of different scientists, once ducks 
set their compass north, they they won't retreat. Uh, and you know you you get you'll get some naturally, uh, but the the masses and that storm was a perfect example about how many mm-hmm. ducks rode that thing out in Arkansas. They did not revert back to Louisiana. They did not go in search of of somewhere that they could have access to food and water and everything else. They decided to hunker down because they had already decided we're not getting any farther away from the breeding grounds than we already are. We've made this much progress. Let's be tough and and, and hang in here. Yeah. And, uh, and, and by most modern day, you know, freeze ups, they don't last very long. So, I mean, the ducks, if you think about it, these ducks are pretty damn smart. Uh, and, and so they know this is only the last couple of days, tough it out. But that was a really harsh storm that, uh, it did, it, 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 uh, it, it, did, it killed a lot of birds within Arkansas and it probably killed a lot of birds along the way because they just ran out of gas trying to make it back. Um, so that that piece is huge, and if and if there's an ability to take, if there's a allocation of money that maybe would be better spent somewhere else, that would that would be interesting to to find that out because I I know they're not flying uh, B pop surveys anymore on speckwellies. Uh, yeah, they didn't. They did not feel it was productive. They weren't getting good numbers, and uh, you start weighing the expense and the and the effort and the energy it was to to do the same thing, you know load two guys up in an airplane and and try to track it they weren't getting the numbers that they felt were any in any way valuable so they haven't they haven't done them they haven't done them the last two years for sure um so you know you've already got the 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 white front community science community has already decided these surveys are not producing anything of value so we're not Mm going to do them yeah well you know a a king air and a u.s fish and wildlife pilot is not cheap to operate and these are no. extensive, you know, time-consuming surveys. Um, I'm not saying that we don't we don't need them, but there's a definitely a high cost associated with that. Yeah, so it's gonna. But then, so then, if you do away with those and you start relying on Link, Lincoln Peterson, are the harvest numbers that are going in there are they are they good? Are those is that good data? Yeah, well, so that, you know that'll that'll bring us back to our bunding, uh, excuse me, banding funding. I ran two words together there. <laughs> uh, so funding for banding projects has dropped. Uh, and, exponentially we don't band and we're just we're not talking about gps transmitters we're just talking about aluminum leg bands we don't band anywhere near the birds we used to and some of these banding stations have been completely shut down covid kind of started that uh the trend has continued you know we're not we're not putting enough bands on so we would have to get back to that we would have to reinvest in banding you know that's where you're going to get your your harvest data and get you know your your better understanding and and keep a finger on it you know if you if the decision was made to go and rely totally on lincoln peterson estimates i think that's what you would have to do is really invest on the research side of things to to keep an eye on that because i think i think that's a little bit of a misconception too on the banding because you see a lot of banding going on or what appears to be a lot of banding going on locally uh you know know yeah game fish is uh, arkansas game fish is banding birds the, the Five Oaks Ag Research Center and Doug Osborne are banning birds. And there's some other uh, efforts that come into the state and ban birds here while they're on the wintering grounds. What you're talking about is the 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 huge decline in efforts on the breeding grounds. Right. Uh, which is all there used to be. 
Uh, there, there was not very much uh, local banding, even though the very first band I killed when I was 13 was banded in the uh, White River National Refuge in, uh, near Ethel, really? Arkansas. Yeah. So oh. that was in 1983. So, uh, so there was some, but not like it is now. And so people see all these banding efforts on social media going, oh man, we're, we're putting bands on everything now. They're catching every duck there is and putting bands on them. But yeah, we're doing a good, we're probably doing a pretty decent job here. We're, we're going to lose some ability to have, you know, some comparable historic data if we don't get the increase back on the, on the breeding grounds. Yeah. I need to find the, the number, how much our band banding count is down historically. We'll, we'll put that on social media. I got to ask somebody that question because I want to know that number. Um, so look for that uh, to show up sometime. But it's yeah, it's interesting. Like we, you see it on social media. You think that that there's a ton of it going on, and the research that you're seeing is phenomenal. I mean, it is. It's doing a lot of things. It's telling us a, a lot of things that we suspected but couldn't confirm. But again, those sample sizes are so small that you're not going to be able to monitor, you know, harvest rate or total harvest that way. Well, you wouldn't get total harvest anyway. But I've heard I've heard some science guys refer to it as boutique banding. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, because donors are coming up with funds to have the banding operation go on on their property, and I, you know, whether they're uh, who knows who's interested in the actual data, or are they just hoping those banded ducks come back to their their uh, decoy spread and and they increase their chances of harvesting a banded duck. Um, I don't know. Time will tell. I yeah. guess. Well, you just. You opened a can of worms, but I guess I'll, I'll wade into it a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, when, when we started uh, funding banding for white fronts and, and telemetry on white fronts, that was man, that was the big hurdle was that nobody in the scientific community wanted private funding. Um, and I can see I can see both sides. of it. I can see why they don't, because once you get a, a private individual who's giving you money, then. Well, they want the bands put on at their place and under their criteria. And it kind of changed. It's not as much pure science then. You know, it's not about exactly where the birds are. It's about where the donor wants it done. So things get a little bit skewed there. But on the flip side of that, you know, you're not looking for tax dollars. You've got people that are willing to go fund these projects and can fund good sized banding operations, you know, privately. So there's been a big shift. It's much more accepted now than it was you know, as little as seven, eight years ago, um, there needs to be a balance there. I, I've seen, you know, kind of the, I've seen both sides of it from talking to biologists and, and seeing people donate money. Um, so anytime a private individual wants to get involved and wants to help with the research, I think we should nurture that. I think we should take advantage of that. You know, it's, it's through private individuals that most of this stuff gets saved anyway, uh, short outside of the farm bill, obviously. But so that's, it's a fine line between, you know, not having hobby science and taking advantage of people who not taking advantage. That's not what I mean, but capitalizing on individuals who want to help. It's it's it, to me and not ever hosting a, a banning effort. Um, I think it's, you know, the way I know the, the dollars are available, it's almost required now or that, that piece of, or that ability to, to track birds that way would, would shrivel even more uh, if we weren't doing mm-hmm. this this private fundraising for that. So I think it's just a necessary uh, effort now that um, 
is the only way we're going to be able to keep this and make it an amount of data that's worth worth having. Yeah, that's, you know, if that sample size could expand, which would have to expand tremendously to be, you know, accepted as same as a, a, a breeding ground banding project. But anyway, if that sample size could continue to expand, it's just going to validate those numbers even more. It's easy yeah. to write it off when you when you ban 10 birds and, you know, each one of them does something different. So you need long duration, big sample size. That's a good thing about the white fronts that you helped us with. Um, even though, you know, we didn't ban, we didn't put out 100 or 200 transmitters here. We were part of an ongoing study. But when it's all said and done, it was it was told to me that that will be basically the most comprehensive telemetry study ever done on a species of waterfowl. Uh, the number of years they did oh, wow. it, the number the amount of yeah. data that's coming back, like they will know more about white fronts uh, and their behavior than almost anything else. So that'd be good. Thanks for being a part of that. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. They're pretty, they're pretty mysterious, pretty mysterious critter um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Especially yeah, if, it, to, uh, if this bee pop thing is going away and, and they don't plan on doing that anymore, then, then yeah, this, those kind of studies are going to be crucial to knowing really what's up with that bird. Yeah, we need to uh, we need to get on here sometime in the coming weeks and talk about the early spec season and you know how you and I kind of feel about some of these things. They're yeah, definitely near and dear to our heart. But that's a another topic for another day. That's right. That's right. Well, we got anything else on this this hot topic? We decided to kind of like we said at the beginning, kind of jump this one in there a little bit and and try to cover it while the the data was still hot because so many people are currently talking about it because i mean when the data came out it was like the the wheels came off when they saw that yeah. mallard dip uh even though they you know a lot of people don't even understand what those numbers mean and and it took me a long time to understand what they what they all really mean and this is this is what factors in and then you kind of go and then you take the time to go back and look in history then you go oh okay i mean it's not great but things could be a lot worse uh things could be a lot better we're just we're kind of treading along with you know we're just the fact is we're just in one of those windows where uh things are not going great on the on the prairie pothole region as far as breeding conditions so yeah that's a that's a controllable that we we really can't control um you know you can you you definitely you can invest money and and to the conservation organizations and help them do the efforts that they're doing up there on our behalf but uh you know you got to take the flip side of that and think about the stuff we talked about earlier about leaving habitat after the season. Um, you know, other things we can truly control, you can control who and what you pull a trigger on, uh, things like that to where, uh, maybe when things do turn up there and we do yeah. get a wet spring that the duck population that does exist at that particular time is in the best possible shape it could be to crank out a bunch of new ducks and and that's how we're going to get back to some good old days type numbers uh that we, that's right that everybody likes to refer to yeah and there, there's still time to you know reach out to your your representative and tell them how important these conservation dollars are in the farm bill how important they are to you taxpayers you you guys have some information we're, we're giving you some information if you have questions reach out to us try to answer anything we can or find you an answer we don't know it but you know, we need this thing voted on and we need funding for these programs because they do matter. Uh, that's the single biggest piece of conservation that that happens. Um, so you talking about the numbers, you know, it's I was surprised. Um, I was surprised it was down that much. 
you and I, I think we're talking the night before about harvest numbers for our state. And we both thought mallard harvest was going to be up a little bit last year. turns out we were, we were both wrong about that. Um, so say that just to say I was, I was surprised by the numbers disappointed. I don't anticipate good recruitment this year, despite, you know, being optimistic about some rainfall early on. Um, but not all is lost. We still have pretty healthy numbers. You know, we're not we're not really close to moderate um, or even restrictive, but we're a little bit close for comfort. Um, you look at the you know kind of the dips we took this year, and I think if we took similar dips again next year, that we would we could be knocking on the door of of some of those moderate or potentially restrictive seasons. It, it, we're definitely sliding closer yeah. that way. For what? For people that don't aren't aware, they take this BPOP number and they take this May pond count number and they plug it into a matrix that spits out whether we should have a liberal season, which is sixty days, six ducks, which is what we've been doing for twenty seven seasons now. Uh, and and based on where these numbers land, unless something crazy comes out of the Mississippi Flyway technical uh, group that's meeting this week here in Arkansas, that's that is looking at these numbers. And analyzing everything else to figure out, okay, the next framework we're setting, this is what it should be. If you go simply by the matrix, it'll be sixty and six again. Um, but they, you know, there there is some ability to waver in there, but typically they go by that because that's what the the uh, the AHM model has has told them to do. Um, but you know, you even think about back to the days um, that we struggle with the thirty duck three duck limits which were that's the that's the conservative model uh, that's meant for the the worst of the worst conditions if ahm would have been around in the late 80s early 90s when we were going through that stretch of 30 and 3 seasons um and we would have taken the may ponds and the b pop counts from those years and plugged them into the the current matrix um we were hunting 30 and 3 based on what they decided at that time, but that's not what the model would have shown for us. We could have actually been some 60 and six seasons in there based on these metrics. And there would have been two seasons where we would have been in the the moderate framework of 45 days and four ducks. Uh, that was 89 and then 91. And But 91 got real close to being a, the restrictive season of 30 and three, which is what it actually was based on how they decided seasons back then. So, um, you know, we think back to those days because that was prior to the adaptation of and development of AHM um, that that now gives them some numbers to go around. They were just kind of shooting at the hip, like, man, that was kind of a tough year up there. Let's cut the season back. Let's make it 30 days. Let's make it 40. And so right. the, it all bounced around. Uh, so whenever everybody panics and people that are, you know, of our age and, and a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger, think about those 30 and three seasons that a lot of people will say that those were some, those were some good, there was some good hunting in there. And those were about the sim- very similar, very, very similar conditions to what we're seeing right now. So, yeah. and we still, and we're getting 60 and six. So kind of interesting. Well, that was the biggest thing that uh, to me, the biggest thing AHM did was kind of the long-term average. You know, it, it wanted to, they wanted to stop this knee-jerk year-to-year data 
reactions. They wanted to establish long-term average and, and not make anything. No decision is ever going to be made in AHM based on one single year. And I say that I shouldn't say that, but we're we're watching trends, right? Like if things skyrocket next year and tank the year after that, there's not going to be a whole lot of movement. It's a it's a trend-based system and it has worked very well. Um so all that being said, we're not in bad shape. Uh I would like to correct the the downward slide if we can, but uh we're not in bad shape. Yeah. Still need to still need to go out there and chase them and still need to do all we can to to put that population back to to what we all kind of dream about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, if we all pick up our ball and quit, there's not gonna be a game around, you know, left to play. Like it it takes all of us to keep this thing going. So um good years, bad years, it all I've hunted it a lot of years. I've had a lot of seasons duck hunting and I'm glad I hadn't quit. I don't have any plans to quit anytime soon. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, thank you all for listening again. I uh, hope you found this informative and took something away from it. Again, we'll try to share these links, uh, let you guys kind of go back and reference some of this. We'll post some of these graphs too. some really cool information here. Um, thanks to all of our sponsors. Thanks for everyone for listening. You can find us on social media at the standard sportsman online at the standard sportsman.com and anywhere that you find your podcast. Don't forget to like, and subscribe. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Sitka Gear, turning clothing into gear. No name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than Gore-Tex. And over the last 50 years, Gore-Tex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing. Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt-sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sitka Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper, vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live frozen birds, let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and like everything Gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed.